Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 75 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, I'll be joined by Paula Pant. Paula is the host of the Afford Anything podcast. We have a really fun conversation, not only talking about some of Paula's personal finance background and and how she started Afford Anything and built it into the empire, for lack of a better term, that it is today, but also we talk about some of Paula's real estate investing because she owns seven real estate properties, as we'll get into, or seven doors, I should say. And she has a lot of cool things to say about real estate. And we also talk a little bit about mindset. In, in a couple interesting ways, growth mindset or just, you know, the willingness to take on challenge in the world and go through some struggle and build something new and unique for yourself, which Paula has done an amazing job with. First, well, we're going to start with a little review of the week. Dennis in Vermont wrote in last week and said, an easy listen for any audience. I've spent my entire career working in the financial services industry. Like Jesse, I'm a fiduciary investment professional with a real passion to deliver financial guidance and education to not only clients, but to friends, family, and anyone who will listen. In today's day and age, there is no shortage of easy-to-access financial information, most of which is heavily jargon and filibuster. I discovered the Best Interest Podcast while searching for content to share with retirement plan participants who I regularly consult with. What I like most about the Best Interest Podcast is that the information is relevant to everyone and can be easily comprehended by everyone. For this reason, I highly recommend subscribing to the pod if you're looking to improve your financial well-being, or if you're an investment professional like me who needs help communicating complex concepts in simple terms. I appreciate what you do, Jesse. Keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate you, Dennis. Thank you for those very kind words. Thank you for listening and for sharing the Best Interest Podcast with some folks who you work with. Dennis, if you're listening now, I hope you are. Shoot me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog and we'll get you hooked up with some cool best interest gear. Okay, before Paula today, we're gonna talk a little bit about some mindset ideas. I'm not talking like guru, woo-woo, you know, kind of fanciful ideas, but just kind of helpful thoughts, at least some things that have helped me along the way. And I'm gonna start with a classic friend of the blog, friend of the podcast, Tyler. Tyler, you know who you are. I hope you're listening right now. This story starts in August of 2021 when Tyler broke his hand on his birthday, no less. Ugh, what a bummer. Sorry, Ty. I know that was a tough time for you because sure, there was the the physical pain of a broken bone and, and that's certainly not fun. But I know Tyler also felt the mental frustration of knowing that I slipped. I fell. I took the wrong step. This wasn't some unavoidable external mistake. This was a self inflicted wound. Self-inflicted wounds are a double bummer, and and bummer one is the wound itself, but that physical pain is compounded by the knowledge that you did it to yourself, and that really is bummer number two. It's the knowledge that the injury was avoidable, and the knowledge that your own mistake will cascade into weeks or months or years of negative consequences. But I want to convince you that bummer number two has very little utility in our lives. You can't go back in time to undo the mistake, Tyler can't unbreak his hand. So what is the real use of feeling that ongoing regret? I think the smart emotional response is not prolonged, but brief. It's to realize your mistake, to learn the lesson, to commit to changing the future behavior, which I think is very important, and then to move on. Because in finances, there are a lot of self-inflicted financial flaws. For example, we spend money on stupid stuff that we later regret. Or we borrow too much money. We go into too much debt for our houses, for our cars, or maybe for our college education. Or we invest too little money early in life. We start investing a little too late in life. Now, the obvious consequences appear on our balance sheets and in our bank accounts. We don't have as much money as we hoped we would. The secondary consequence, though, it haunts our thoughts, right? If only I bought Bitcoin in 2012, I could buy four jet skis like the Jones family down the street. But just like with Tyler's broken hand, those if only regrets, they really don't have much use in our lives. They're only worthwhile if they help you learn for next time. And that's great. If they do help you learn for next time, that's a wonderful reason to have a regret. But beyond that, it's uselessly crying over spilled milk. So my go-to overspending story, as an example, is that I bought a hot tub in 2017. 
I overspent and then I underutilized it. But it helped me learn some amazing lessons. So the first one, I have a psychological weak spot for a good sales pitch. And you might too. I think most of us think that we're immune to sales or we think, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to fall for that sales pitch. But until you understand the way that salespeople work, the fact of the matter is you might fall for a sales pitch. And for example, I found the book Influence by Robert Cialdini. I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf. It was extremely helpful because it allowed me to recognize sales pitches more readily. Another thing when it came to the hot tub, I learned a lesson that it's important to find the root of your desire. So it turns out I thought hot tubs were so much fun because in my limited experience with them, it always involved groups of friends. It involved, you know, that fun weekend getaway in the Adirondack Mountains with a kind of a cabin in the woods and a hot tub. See, it, it wasn't the hot tub itself that was so fun. It was the friends. It was the weekend getaway. And you don't necessarily need a hot tub just to hang out with friends. And I also learned that good deals are always out there. I bought what ended up being, call it the Mercedes of hot tubs. And I probably should have just gone with a used Honda, maybe a new Honda, but either way, a Honda over a Mercedes. I don't regret necessarily buying the hot tub, but I learned some valuable lessons from that experience. Now, another self-inflicted wound that many of us have suffered is over-borrowing. If only I knew at age 18 what I now know at age 24 or 28 or 32, I never would have borrowed that $100,000 for college. I see this sentiment a lot. It's a really tough pill to swallow. A lot of the millennial generation are dealing with these thoughts. And now I suppose, what, Gen Z? They're after millennials. They're starting to deal with it too. The desire to change past decisions is so strong, but the ability to change those past decisions is non-existent. And if you let it, that kind of frustration can consume you. So what can you do about it? A few ideas. Well, the first one, obviously, hopefully, is to never make that same mistake again, right? We have to learn from our mistakes the first time. The second one is to help others avoid the same mistake in the future. I think that's a powerful way of, of learning from our mistakes. And then the third is to find an optimal path out of the woods. So if you find yourself in debt, maybe you don't take joy in, you know, or you just don't want to put yourself out there and help others avoid the same mistake. I totally get that. I think it behooves you to find an optimal path out of the woods for you, right? You, you can't change the past, but you can find the quickest way to, to get out of the mess that you find yourself in. So we learn from the past and we lean into the future. The last one, too little, too late, the regret of inaction. So now that we are what? We are 14 years into an amazing bull market stock run. Okay, maybe we had a little blip there in 2022. That's fine. But either way, the last 15 years overall since the great financial crisis have been a wonderful time to be a stock investor. And I read a lot of comments like, damn, I missed my chance to invest. And that means either one, I'll never get another chance to invest again. Or two, I should wait for the market to fall before pulling the trigger and investing. Now, this thought process is very easy to empathize with, but thankfully, it's also easy to refute. For evidence, I highly recommend you read two articles that I've written on the blog. The first one is called, Are We in the Best Stock Market Period Ever? And the second one is called, Should You Keep Investing at All-Time Highs? The current stock market is not a reason to feel like you shouldn't be investing. And again, those two articles are in the show notes. Now, the last thing I want to leave you with from this first kind of stanza of the monologue is self-inflicted growth. Because I want to leave you with this question. What are all the things you've done right in your life? It's easy to focus on the negatives in life. Many of us are maybe perfectionists, or at the very least, we, we seek growth, we seek improvement. Our mistakes, those are low-hanging fruit right before the fixing, right? It's easy to see the broken hand and say, I messed up. I want to improve that. Does it do us good to focus on the bad stuff a hundred times more than we focus on the good stuff? I doubt it. So next time you're wallowing in self-inflicted guilt, remind yourself of the amazing contributions that you've made to your world, to your financial life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And take heart in the fact that you're making strides to be ever better. Okay, let's transition to Travis Scott's important investing reminder. Now, Travis Scott, I'm told, is a, a rapper. I used to be into rap. Full disclosure, when I was maybe 12, 13, 14, high school age, I enjoyed rap. There was some Jay-Z, Fabulous. I still know the lyrics to a lot of rap songs. Eminem, all, all fine. Good artists, talented people. Travis Scott and some of the new age hip-hop and rap stars, I, I don't really know them. I don't really know their music. But anyway, Travis Scott is a, a more modern rapper, and he has an important investing reminder for us. And this story starts on November 5th, 2021 where sadly there was a crowd surge 
at a Travis Scott concert in Houston that I think in retrospect, a lot of people ended up blaming Travis Scott for. And it sounds like he was probably guilty. That's neither here nor there. I'll let you guys do your own research if you want. But the sad thing is the crowd got out of control and people panicked and some people died. And it's a terrible, terrible way to die. And more importantly for the the topic today is that it's a preventable way to die. And I say it's preventable because this has happened before. Crowd surges have happened before, not once, not twice, but hundreds of times. For example, the Romans and the Jews infamously suffered a deadly crowd trampling incident that killed hundreds of people. And do you, do you know when that was? I mean, the hint is it was the Romans and the Jews. It was thousands of years ago. Humans have known this for a very long time, that crowds cannot control themselves. Left to their own devices, they will overcrowd. They'll panic, stampede, and riot, and that leads to death. Humanity knows this, or at least we should know it, right? We should have learned this important lesson millennia before Travis Scott was a glimmer in his pappy's eye, but we need reminders. And without those reminders, we repeat our past mistakes. It gets worse. You know, it's the same for nightclub fires or, or structure fires. And I know this is a morbid topic, but, but stick with me for a minute and we will get to the investing content, I swear. For example, the station fire. The station was a nightclub in Rhode Island. The station fire killed 100 people and injured 230 more people. And you might ask yourself, wow, that, that's tragedy. When did that happen? Was it in the 1800s, maybe the early 1900s? Or I don't know, maybe it was in like the 1950s before fire alarms, that kind of, no. It was in 2003. The station fire was far from the first awful club or structure fire in the United States too. We've had fires kill more than 500 people from one building. But at the station in 2003, they forgot or ignored or never even contemplated the lessons we've compiled from generations of fire safety. Again, people need reminders. Without them, we repeat our past mistakes. Now, both Travis Scott's concert and the station fire, both the scenarios make me want to grab someone by the shirt collar and shake them and ask them, how did you not know better? But we already know the answer. People need reminders. It's that simple. If we don't actively choose to remember, then we forget. Entropy kicks in. We get lazy. We cut corners. Our safety systems lose their edge. And it's a slippery slope downwards, and then tragedy strikes. That tragedy jolts us, and we suddenly remember, oh, this is why we had those safety measures in place. This is the bad outcome that can occur. Tragedy, or if we're lucky, a mere close call, it's a highly effective reminder of rationality. But of course, it's a tragedy too, right? We don't want to have to suffer a tragedy every time we need a reminder of how to be rational. The preferred choice is to maintain rationality before the painful reminder. Okay, so let's talk investing. There's a direct analogy between the panic of a crowd and the panic of an investing market. Every investing bubble in history is marked by the fact that rationality was forgotten, common sense became uncommon, and past lessons were ignored. In fact, the language of market irrationality is the same language of crowd irrationality. What's a synonym for a market crash? It's a panic. Well, how do you describe a panic selling event? It's like a large movie theater with a small door. That sounds like a fire trap to me. And in fact, the most famous book about investing bubbles is called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. That's right, the madness of crowds. The psychology of markets is eerily analogous to that of physical crowds. The highs can be similarly euphoric, right? We're all one soul, man. The music is flowing through me. But the lows can be similarly destructive. And just like a fire or a crowd surge, a market crash helps us remember that people need reminders and without them, we'll repeat our past mistakes. So when I wrote this article, it brought me to Charlie Munger. You know, the Bitcoin Grinch himself, love Charlie Munger. More rationality, more often. That is the best preventative for avoiding crashes of all sorts. And if I had to guess, that's exactly why Charlie Munger says that cryptocurrency is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. Those are exact quotes. One of my favorites one right there. Contrary to the interests of civilization. It's because Charlie Munger saw crypto as a bubble. And a bubble is kind of equivalent to Travis Scott's concert before the tragedy struck. It's a powder keg waiting for a spark. And Munger saw that. And he didn't want to wait for what he thought would be a future Bitcoin panic. He wanted to call attention to it now. In other words, Charlie remembers he remembers the many bubbles that he's read about before, 
and the few that he's seen firsthand, and he doesn't want to forget or repeat past mistakes. Now, is Charlie right? Was he right about Bitcoin, about cryptocurrency? I'm not wise enough to know myself, but I listen hard. I listen hard when a smart, rational person says, we've made mistakes like this before, and I see one again. Charlie was acting like a fire marshal, right? He's seen the charred remains of too many buildings, and he's now walking into the Bitcoin nightclub, as it were, and calmly stating, this is a fire hazard and a death trap, period. It's hard to know if Charlie Munger was right. We might not know this week, this month, this year, this decade. It might take a long time to know if Charlie Munger was right or wrong. But if he was correct and the risk was present, then the law of large numbers mandates that tragedy will eventually strike. Charlie, to his credit, is famously a student of psychology. He knew how people tick, both individually and in crowds. And he knew that people need reminders. And without them, we repeat our past mistakes. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Every week, I send a quick free email to thousands of readers that shares three simple things. One, my new articles and podcasts. Two, the best financial content of the week from all over the internet. And three, a financial chart that explains some important concept in the news that week. It's a great primer to boost your financial know-how. Uh, but Jesse, I don't want another email. Well, this might not be for you. But I do hear you, which is why I make it very short, sweet, and full of only the essentials. While 18% of people who sign up eventually unsubscribe, and 13% of people who are signed up haven't opened it in the past three months, a whopping 66% of subscribers read my email at least once a month. They're enjoying it, and maybe you will too. You can subscribe for free on the homepage at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's a free, no-strings-attached subscription at bestinterest.blog. Well, let's go from one wise person in Charlie Munger to another wise person in Paula Pant. Paula Pant is a podcast host, a writer, speaker, and media commentator on financial independence, real estate investing, money management, and financial literacy. She is the creator and the host of the Afford Anything podcast, which has more than 30 million downloads and is ranked by Apple Podcasts as one of the top 50 business podcasts. She is the founder of affordanything.com, personal finance and financial independence website that draws more than 2.5 million annual page views and holds more than 78,000 email subscribers. And you might have seen Paula starring in the Netflix documentary, Get Smart With Money, on which she also served as a consulting producer. Paula, thanks for stopping by the Best Interest Podcast. I thought we could start with the Afford Anything Credo. I think anyone who has listened to you has heard the idea that you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. So I wanted to start with that statement because I think it's just such a fundamental, but probably underrated pillar of personal finance. So where did the statement come from? Why has it really become one of your personal mantras? Sure. Well, first off, to explain that credo a little bit to anybody who's new to it, the notion that you can afford anything but not everything is fundamentally one of opportunity cost. Every time you say yes to something, you are implicitly saying no to something else. And the problem is a lot of people don't consciously recognize that. I came up with afford anything when I was in my 20s, my, my mid-20s. I mm -hmm. quit my job. I was making the highest income that I ever made working for somebody else was $31,000 a year. So I, I quit a job at which I was earning a full-time salary of $31,000 a year. And I lived out of a backpack. And for the next 27 months, I backpacked around the globe. I flew hmm. to Egypt on a one-way ticket and <laughs> spent six weeks in Egypt. And then I went to, to Israel, to India, to Nepal, to Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, and then I finished mm -hmm. it off with 10 months in Australia, plus like three weeks in New Zealand. During that time, my friends kept saying, I would love to do that, but I can't afford it. I kept hearing that over and over and over. I would love to travel yeah. like that, but I can't afford it. But the thing is, I know that those friends were making substantially more than 31000 a year. M many of them were making double or more than double that, right? But they were also living in apartments with stainless steel appliances. They would go to bars on the weekends and buy $14 cocktails, right? They 
would buy $50 or $100 concert tickets. And that's fine if you sit down and you make the conscious choice that, hey, I could either travel or I could have stainless steel appliances and $14 cocktails, right? Which one do I prefer? If you sit down and you think about it and you make the deliberate conscious decision that you prefer the stainless steel appliances and the $15 and the expensive cocktails, that's great. I fully support that because that is a deliberate conscious choice. But then the statement is not, I can't afford to travel. The statement is, I choose not to travel. I have decided that travel is not a priority for me, right? So it isn't that you can't, it's that you choose not to. To say that you can't is simply disempowering and also false. And so that's why I started Afford Anything is I wanted to eradicate the phrase, I can't afford it from people's mouths when it comes to all reasonable purchases. Now, of course, there are like nitpicky nerds out there who are like, can you afford a rocket ship? You know, (laughs) and so Afford Anything is not an abdication of common sense, right? (laughs) Afford Anything means that anything that a reasonable middle class American can do is something that is within your reach as well. I, I think to myself, I think it's Jesse Meacham and the YNAB, You Need a Budget app. They, part of their fundamental rules is, you know, a dollar can only be spent once. And, right. I, and, and that's, a, that's a very similar thought process, which is like, you know, right. If you want to spend a dollar on that cocktail, go for it. But that mm-hmm. dollar can no longer be allocated to your future trip. It can no longer be allocated to your retirement savings. Mm-hmm. And on the opposite end of that spectrum, you know, we're big savers and, and the FI and personal finance community are big on saving. If you allocate dollars to your savings, you can't then spend those dollars on having fun today. And it really is about striking some sort of balance there. And I should also add, you know, it's this applies not just to money. It applies to any limited resource. Mm-hmm. So it applies mm-hmm. to time. It applies totally. to energy, attention, focus. All of those are limited. And that's something, especially in the FI, the financial independence community, Many people become obsessed with the numbers. They often, I think this is one of the pendulum swinging too far in the opposite direction, can devalue their time in exchange for a rounding error. And when that happens, you are trading your most valuable asset, which is your time, your energy, your attention. That is a non-renewable asset. Money is a renewable asset. And so afford anything applies to time as well. It applies to all limited resources. That, that's so cool. And and only out of curiosity, do you have a, a background in, in economics at all? Because the whole opportunity cost is a very, you know, very <laughs> economic uh, Yeah. Thought. I have a master's in economic journalism, economic and business journalism from Columbia University. Very cool. Very cool. Well, let's segue a little bit because I'm, I'm kind of interested. So your, your greatest earning year, $31,000, you used it to afford not everything, but anything in the in the form of this amazing world trip. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about your personal FI or FIRE or just per your personal finance journey, Paula. You know, we love good examples, good stories. Everybody likes a good story. So where did you find yourself in life before discovering the world of personal finance? Mm-hmm. And what's your journey and growth been like? So straight out of college, I was a newspaper reporter and my starting salary was $21,000 a year. Now, this is in 2005. So you've got to adjust mm-hmm. that for inflation. So actually, you know what? Let's do that really quickly right now. Let's do it live. Yeah, let's do it live. All right. So (laughs) 21,000 in 2005 dollars is what today? Okay. Oh, 32,752. Got it. Got it. So my starting salary was today's equivalent of earning 32,000 a year. And I worked that job for three years. And so Mm -hmm. at the time that I quit that job, which was in 2008, my ending salary was 31,000, so let's see 31,000 in 2008 dollars. So 43,805. Okay. 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 So in so modern ba- dollars yeah. 44,000 ish. 43 44,000 was your top end salary. Exactly, exactly. So uh, during that time, I lived on my full-time income. I I still contributed 15% to a 401k. But other than that, I lived on, and I didn't know, I, unfortunately, I didn't know about the Roth IRA, um, which was dumb. <laughs> but I contributed 15% to a traditional 401k. The rest of it, uh, I lived on. And then during the evenings and weekends, I freelanced. And my freelance income was 
at, at an hourly rate was substantially higher than what I was making in my full-time job, I would write these articles where I would make the equivalent of $75 an hour, which when you're making a full-time salary of the, today's equivalent of 44000 a year, and on the side, you're making $75 an hour, I mean, that's the, the huge. Shor- it's yeah. huge. The, the shortcut for anyone listening is you, you work about 2,000 hours a year in a standard job. So take right. your salary, divide it by 2,000. You are earning about $22 an hour right, in, in exactly. your salary. So 22 an hour versus 75 on the freelance side. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's just like what, 4X difference. Yeah, it's huge. Right? It's huge. Every penny that I made from freelancing after taxes, I saved. And so I ended up over the span of three years, I saved on average about $800 a month. And so after three years, that totaled up to $25,000. Now that for me was the equivalent of about one year salary. Because mm-hmm. you remember during this three-year time span, I was earning 21 on the low end, 31 on the high end. So right. on average during those three years, I was earning 25 grand. And after three years, that was what I saved. I had the equivalent of a year salary in the bank. And so when that happened, a couple of things. So it was 2008. It was, I quit my job kind of right before the Great Recession really kicked in. Like there were signs that the economy was not doing well, but we weren't really in the, the throes of it quite yet. Mm-hmm. But it was very clear that print journalism was not doing well. And it was very clear that if you just stated in newspaper hoping for promotions, you're going to go nowhere fast. So you saw the writing on the wall. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so it was clear that the future of journalism was going to be online and it was going to be independent. And so I did in 2008 the thing that no one ever does, which is I voluntarily quit a job at a print newspaper which no one does because those jobs are so few and far between. Everyone was like, you're committing career suicide. You're never going to get a job again. And sure enough, I never have gotten a job again. (laughs) That that was the last job I ever had. (laughs) So I guess they were right. You know, I I never got a job again. And so for the next 27 months, I just backpacked. You know, I I was not trying to build a full-time freelance career. I was just freelancing, moonlighting here and there, writing an article or two. But mostly I was in countries where the dollar exchange rate really worked in my favor. You know, I was in Laos. I was in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Like I was in places where the U.S. dollar just went a lot further. So I was living on about $1,000 a month. A lot of people think that traveling is like, oh, I'm in transit all the time, like which is what you do if you've got 10 days of holiday, right? right? When you're backpacking, you go to one location and you park your butt there for five weeks, which means you're not spending money on bus tickets. You're not spending money on transit. You're like renting a guest house for $5 a night and you're eating local food. You're eating pad thai for 25 cents. And so travel becomes a lot cheaper when you think of it not as a holiday, but rather as essentially just living your life in a different location, right? That's how it becomes so cheap. You're just living your life elsewhere. Like, I just sat there and like read Harry Potter books. Did you take any inspiration from uh, Vagabonding? But the oh, book, by Rolf the, Potts. By, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. an oldie. That's an oldie but in, goodie. Indirectly, because that's, that's what he talks a lot about is just travel somewhere and then park yourself, preferably travel somewhere cheap. Yeah, And then park exactly. yourself and just live life in this new city and, and see how the locals live. And it's a very cool way of approaching not only travel, but just kind of being a global citizen. Exactly. I'm a huge fan of that, like long-term slow travel, because that's mm-hmm. the that's the way that you sink in. Cool. How yeah. did that then, so now you're probably by then, what, in your late 20s maybe when the mm-hmm. 27 months is up? Yeah, exactly. And, and I was 20. With no job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're in Australia or New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And, and then what? So then I came back to the U.S. I moved to Atlanta because that's where my parents live. I found uh, on Craigslist, it was five roommates sharing a three-bedroom. So my personal share of the rent was $200 per month, but only because we were cramming so many people into such a small space. I had a car that was worth probably around like three grand, you know, just a super old beater. And, you know, I basically ate from Costco and those, those were my bills that and health insurance, right? Health insurance is probably my biggest bill. But based with like an extremely, extremely cheap, cheap, cheap cost of living, 
I started eking out, at the time, a career as a freelance writer. And eventually that escalated. Two things happened simultaneously. One was that as my freelance writing clients grew and grew and grew and grew, I came to realize that I was getting more work than I could individually handle myself. And Mm. so I formed a content agency. And so I started hiring freelance writers who worked under me. And then I managed those writers and I would pass the projects on to those writers. And then my agency, my content management agency would handle, you know, the assignments. And then I began to realize that you could make a little bit of money if all you did was like submit an assignment. But you could make a lot more money if you did all of the management of the editorial calendars. And so I was serving clients. These were mostly small business clients. Small businesses paid much better than publications. So Mm. I started working for these two to three person certified financial planner firms or these two to three person accountant firms, these small businesses that needed content. They needed real estate content in order to be competitive on Google to corner SEO, you know, they wanted to to really corner the SEO market for like Kansas City accountant. But they don't have the time to do all of that writing themselves, nor do they have the time to even just broadly, like if you're assigning it to writers, somebody still has to manage that. You've got to manage the editorial calendar. You've got to study keyword optimization, right? Somebody needs Mm -hmm. to manage, editorially manage the project. And so that's what my agency ended up doing. We became content editors and managers we became a content editing and management agency. So hmm. that ended up being fairly lucrative. And so that was how I, that was the first time that I began earning six figures. And, you know, as somebody who used to make 31000 a year, to be self-employed and earning six figures was huge. And so I was doing that. That was my full-time work. And then in parallel with that, I was running Afford Anything. I started Afford Anything in 2011. And for the okay. first five years or so, it was making... Some money, but not a ton. But I knew the audience was growing. The readership was growing. After five years, I knew that if I were to give it my full-time attention, then this could really be something. And so in 2016, I faced this crossroads where I was like, man, do I continue running this six-figure business that I built or do I kill the business? Like it, it didn't seem viable enough to sell. You know, do I kill this business that I painstakingly grew and instead focus all of my effort on building out my own platform, right? Mm -hmm. Afford anything. And it was terrifying. But my thinking was a content management agency is a service-based agency model business. And the gross margins on that tend to be rather limited. I felt Mm -hmm. like that could be a six-figure business, but I would... I personally would have a hard time growing that to a seven-figure business. By contrast, if you're building a platform, if you're building a brand, that's a very different business model entirely. That can be a seven- or eight-figure business. That was around 2016. So since 2016 or or so, Afford Mm -hmm. Anything has been 100% of your time and energy, maybe maybe even 110% of your time and energy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And you don't have to share personal details with us, but as far as your own financial independence journey goes, I mean, how has Afford Anything helped you in that regard? Oh, I mean, it's the overwhelming, I mean, it's my sole source of income, right? Okay, yeah. And so the money that I've made through, first through the content marketing agency, that, that was really key. And then later through Afford Anything, the money that I've made through being an entrepreneur and through Mm -hmm. running businesses that has allowed me to aggressively invest. And by virtue of A, increasing my income, and then B, using that increased income to aggressively make investments, that's what's allowed me to build my net worth. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. One of the more common questions I hear is, Jesse, what do you like and use? Books, blogs, podcasts, even banks and brokerage firms. What are your recommendations? So to answer that question, I put together a web page. You can check it out at bestinterest.blog slash recommendations. Again, that's bestinterest.blog slash recommendations to check out how I'm improving my financial life. Let's transition a little bit into the investing, Paula. I know that you 
have done and continue to do a lot of real estate investing. Real estate investing is a, a regular topic on Afford Anything. And you even, you have some courses re- related to real estate investing. Just one. Just one. I'm sorry. So one mm-hmm. course. We haven't talked about real estate investing a lot here before on the Best Interest Podcast. So what's some of your background or experience or just, you know, where are you in the real estate investing world? So I have seven uh, rental units, all paid free and clear. One triplex, one duplex, and two single-family homes. So yeah, that's a portion of my portfolio. Do you manage them yourself? As like, are you the the landlord who someone's going to call at ten at night if the toilet's overflowing? Only with one of them. For the rest, they've got property managers. Got it. What's the thought process on that? Well, number one, they're all out of state. Right, I live in New York City, and so these and the seven units that I have are spread across three different states. They're spread across. Georgia, Indiana, and Nevada. You know, I live in Manhattan. Manhattan is a terrible place to invest in uh, rental real estate. So I'm a big proponent of if you live in a high cost of living area, don't buy real estate there, not as an investment. I mean, if you want to have something for yourself personally, I think that's still a really terrible use of money. But if for emotional (laughs) reasons you want to, then, you know, people buy things for emotional reasons all the time. But specifically as an investment, buy in low cost of living areas. You know, that's where the good investment deals are because you're going to be looking for properties that have a healthy cap rate, right? And a cap rate is simply a measure of the unleveraged dividend or income stream that a property produces. So if you think of it, all assets, whether it's index funds or income properties, all assets make money in two ways, right? There is appreciation, which is the value of the asset rising, And then there's the dividend or income stream that it pays. So a share of Coca-Cola ideally will rise over time. That's the appreciation. And that share of Coca-Cola will also pay a dividend. Same thing with a rental property. That rental property will ideally rise in value over time. That's great. But that's also market-based appreciation, which is largely out of your control. I like to conservatively estimate that it'll just keep pace with inflation, nothing more. Historically, it's actually been around 5%. So if you want to say... Inflation plus two, if you imagine around three to five percent over the long term, that's ballpark what you can estimate there. Now, the real money comes from the dividend or the income stream that that property pays. And so that income stream is rent minus operating expenses is your net operating income. And then that net operating income divided by the purchase price or acquisition price of the property, that's your cap rate. You know, what I look for is properties with healthy cap rates. And you're likely to find a really healthy cap rate in a location that has a low cost of living. So Paula, what what is an example of an attractive cap rate to you? Oh, okay. So in the way that you want returns to be commensurate with risk, right? You want low risk, low, low risk, you accept low returns, mm-hmm. higher risk, you demand higher returns mm-hmm. in order to justify the higher risk. That's the same way that I look at cap rates. So when you think of properties are class A, B, C, or D, a class A property is a property that is relatively low risk. It tends to be a newer property, either new construction or newly renovated. It tends to be in the, you know, what I call the, the Lululemon Panera Bread neighborhoods, the SoulCycle neighborhoods, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So if you're, if you're drawing the Lululemon crowd, right? That's, those are the class A rental properties. And generally in those properties, you tend to have high occupancy, low levels of repairs, maintenance, capital expenditures, because they are tend to be newer or more newly renovated properties. You tend to have, like I said, high occupancy, low tenant turnover, high demand. So your vacancy rate tends to be quite small. There tend to not be a whole lot of problems or issues that you have to deal with in those properties. And so for a class A property, I mean, if it's super class, if it's class like A plus, man, I'll take a three cap for that even, uh-huh. or if, you know, if it's like class A plus, plus, plus. By contrast, if you've got a property that is class B, which is, I would say, where Homer Simpson lives, like if you think of Homer and Marge Simpson, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that would be like a class B neighborhood. I grew up in a like a class, I'd say B minus C plus neighborhood. This is not what you should do, but mm-hmm. this is just what I personally do. Personally, I would look for maybe a five cap in a place like that. And then if you're going class C, I would look for maybe at least a six, seven cap there. Because they are worse grade real estate, you're demanding a higher percentage of rental income. Like so for a seven cap, that would be what? That the operating income of the property 
pays you back 7% of what your initial investment was on an annual basis? The net operating income of the property would be 7%. Got it. Net operating income. Okay. And, and, right. and these are riskier properties. And therefore, as the investor, you are saying that you need more reward for them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and the reason for that is because there's going to be a lot more with the riskier properties, there's going to be a lot more volatility in what you're actually making, right? With riskier properties, you're likely to have much higher repair costs, much higher maintenance costs, much higher levels of capital expenditure, more turnovers, more vacancy. Vacancy is a huge, huge cost, right? Massive cost. Because of that, there's likely going to be a lot of variability. There might be some years where you are just negative, right? Where you're in the hole with a class C property and you, you're bleeding money, you're losing money. And then there are other years where you need a really good return in order to compensate for the years where you were just bleeding. By contrast, with a class A property, you tend to have more stability, right? You tend to have more predictable returns. So the returns aren't going to be as high. You're not going to make as much money, but it's going to just be a lot more generally going to be a lot more predictable over time. And actually, I, I do want to come back to the fact that you have properties in such a diverse, different uh, geographies. But are your properties that you own, would you uh, classify them as class A, class B, class C? I used to have C properties. I no longer do. So they range class A and B. Got but it. there's even within that, there's a spectrum of like, you know, you've got the B minus and you've got the B plus. They're all, I would say, within the A, B like, sphere. Like this, this, yeah. this one, there is a Panera close by, but the bread is kind of stale usually. So that's not really an A. <laughs> it's kind of like a B plus. But you, you mentioned properties in Georgia. Your parents are in Georgia. Yeah, exactly. But I, I moved to Atlanta. I lived there for five years. Gotcha. And, and is that the Georgia connection, which is why you, you have properties there? Exactly. What about the Nevada and was it Indiana? Was that the other place? Yeah, Nevada, I, I also lived in for five years. And then Indiana... That one, I had never, I'd never set foot in Indiana prior to going there to look for rental real estate. I actually, in my course, uh, the course that I teach, which is called Your First Rental Property, it's for beginners, I documented the entire process of having never set foot in the state of Indiana. I documented, all right, from the internet, you know, from afar, from New York, here's how I'm doing my preliminary research. Here's how I'm narrowing it down. Here's how I'm looking at different neighborhoods. And here's my preliminary research from that I've done from Manhattan. And then I actually videoed myself like, all right, here's me boarding the plane. Here's me getting off the flight and realizing I forgot my toothbrush. Right. <laughs> and, and then just documented like a 48 hour trip. It was a weekend, mm. literally a weekend trip where I was just like z z z z zipped across all these different neighborhoods got like a, a sense of the terrain mm -hmm. and 48 hours on the ground and then boom, back home, right? It was a weekend trip. And then from home, I started just making offers on properties with, you know, the knowledge of the neighborhoods that I had from those 48 hours. And then I went under contract on a handful of properties before I closed on uh, the duplex that I have there. Uh, have you been back to Indiana since? Because I know you're, you, you're managing it remotely, right? I've been there one more time since okay. then. Actually, it was I went under contract on another property because I was going to buy a different duplex, like a second duplex mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And so I went under contract on it. And then during the inspection, a bunch of stuff came to light. And so I canceled the contract. Got it. Got it. I but just that was the other time that I went back. That, that's so cool, though, just because it shows the power of, you know, much like in the way that index fund investing gives you access to these cash flows and access to these companies. You don't have to sit on the board and you're not the CEO, you're not the employee, but you get to invest in them from afar. And I think the average person probably thinks of rental real estate investing as like, oh, that's very hands-on and it's, it's very intense and you better know how to replace a shingle and, and fix a toilet. But you're kind of showing and, and others have shown that, no, it's very possible to do from a remote location. You can hire out a lot of the help. And, and I'm sure there are some costs involved in all of that. Obviously, that might affect your overall return, but if you pick the right property with a good cap rate and a good neighborhood, those kind of things, it's it's a great investment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You could say it's a 10x investment, which is a perfect segue. <laughs> one of my next questions, Paula, it's, it's one of my favorite articles on Afford Anything. It's about 10x thinking. What exactly is 10x thinking? So this is something that I wrote because I myself was struggling with thinking bigger. 
And I, I think that that's something, particularly those of us who are naturally frugal, we're inclined to save, maybe people, especially people in the financial independence space. There's a bit of a mindset of, hey, what I earn is fixed or what I earn is, you know, X. And so my job is to save more of what I make. And 10X thinking flips that on its head and says, you know what? No, you're, you can't shrink your rate of greatness. If you are entirely focused on pinching pennies, then you're never going to get very far. You're going to be overlooking opportunities for dollars for the sake of clutching onto dimes. Let's flip the script and let's focus on the earning side, the income side, the growth side. Let's focus on what are the things that you can be doing that would 10x your income. I remember going back to what we were talking about earlier. I, when I was making $31,000 in 2008, which is the equivalent of with inflation, I was making the equivalent of $44,000 a year as a full-time salary in today's dollars, right? Which is the equivalent of $22 per hour. But as a freelancer, I was making, let's see, let's actually do the math because $75 per mm -hmm. hour in 2008, what would that be in today's dollars? So 75, that'd be $106 per hour today. That was 5X, right? That was 5X. I, I, in my day job, was making the equivalent of $22 an hour. But as a freelancer, I was making the equivalent of $100 an hour, right? So I was making 5X as a freelancer over what I was making in my day job. And those are the types of opportunities that allow you to move the needle. I mean, how making 31000 a year, I never would have been able to save to amass a savings of 25000 there's just no way. Right. But freelancing, yeah. I could. Back then, I didn't realize that there was a distinction between being self-employed versus being an entrepreneur. At the time, I thought that one was equal to the other. It took me a couple of years to figure out that even being self-employed, you're trading time for money versus as an entrepreneur, you're building a platform and a brand and systems and processes and you're building something that can outlive you, right? The goal of a business is build something that outlives you and outlasts you so that you are not the bottleneck and it is not dependent on on you and only you. What do you think is the thing that is holding, you know, average Joe or average Jane who who may or may not be listening to this podcast? It's actually um we've done science, we've hired the Einsteins of the world and listeners of the Best Interest podcast are not average Joes and Janes. They are far above average. We thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. But for those who are listening who are like how how do I implement 10x thinking into my life? What is your thought process on that? There are a few things. So number one, and I think each person listening needs to do an internal check of whether or not they have a tendency for this. I see this a lot on, on social media. Anytime that there's an article about somebody's success, you inevitably read this long string of comments where people will attribute somebody else's success to some imagined advantage that they just assume the other person has. Right. So there will be an article on like so and so bought a house and people are like, bet their parents bought it for them. But if you actually stop and do the math, OK, so and so bought a three hundred thousand dollar house using an F.A. loan, putting five percent down. So like five percent of three hundred thousand, that's what, fifteen thousand dollars. So how do you save fifteen thousand dollars? You save five hundred dollars a month for 30 months. Can you save $500 a month? Yeah, I think you can. Very few people will stop and actually do the math and ask, how is this possible? Instead, they'll have this knee-jerk reaction of like, I bet it's not possible. And so yeah. you see that and it's really toxic thinking. And that's the type of thinking that makes people, people hold themselves back, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're just always assuming that everybody who has done something great has done it through mechanisms that you cannot access... If that's the assumption that you use to walk through life, you are guaranteed to be stuck where you are, right? So that is not a success mindset. It's not a growth mindset. And it's not a mindset that's serving you. It's a, in fact, it's a mindset that's holding you back. So if you want to move forward, then you've got to get rid of that thinking. I, I really like that. And I, I like the idea of just open-mindedness and curiosity, wonderful traits to have. And then some, something that's helped me, and I'm not sure if I'm at 10x yet, maybe I'm at four or six or eight x and working my way up, 
But I kind of zoomed out on the world and said to myself, you know what, there are some people who are the Einsteins and they were born with a really high IQ and, and maybe I'll never be there. There are other people who are the Shaquille O'Neal's of the world. And you know what, I'm never going to be seven foot one and weigh 300 pounds and, and be as strong as he is. So maybe that's not my future. But for 99% of people and 99% of jobs and 99% of the paths that are available before us, it's kind of just average people like you and me, but who, who dedicated themselves in a big way or were open to try something new. And then they, they went after that thing and it worked out for them. And, and you right. realize it's not that someone's born with this amazing trait that you and I aren't privy to, the Einstein or the Shaq type trait. They just have a little bit of gumption and maybe a little bit of luck and a, and a little bit of, and a lot of hard work and all these things kind of mix together in a pot and some magic ensues. But right. it's possible for me and you. I mean, that's the big takeaway, I think. Yeah, exactly. So 10x thinking, I like it a lot. And we are, I really, like I was saying, I love that article a lot. It'll be in the show notes. A lot of afford anything will be in the show notes. But just in case, Paula, mm -hmm. someone isn't sure how to find you, how to reach out to you, how to, I don't know, follow you on social media. Where yeah. can you direct our listeners? Well, then the number one place to find me is through the podcast, the Afford Anything podcast. So the same way that you're listening to this podcast, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, whatever it is that you're using, go there, find the Afford Anything podcast, hit the follow button, and that's how you'll get all of our upcoming episodes. So number one, go to the Afford Anything podcast on your favorite podcast player. Number two, we have, if you want to subscribe, we have our own show notes that have a synopsis of every episode and all the things that we're talking about. Plus, we have a newsletter that we send out occasionally. And that newsletter goes to everyone who subscribes to the show notes. And that's much, much more in-depth. So that is, if you go to affordanything.com slash show notes, that's where you can subscribe to that. Very cool. So whether you're listening to this from Lululemon or Panera, <laughs> thank you for listening. And Paula Pant, thank you for stopping by the Best Interest Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.